From the University of Cambridge, this is Election, the politics podcast. My name is David Runciman, and last week we were talking about two elections. This week we're going to be talking about three elections and a referendum. There's a lot going on. In a moment, we're going to be going back to Uganda to find out about the results of the presidential election there. And then we'll be talking about Donald Trump and the politics of disgust. But this week, our primary focus is going to be on Ireland, where voters go to the polls on Friday. And my special guest is the leading Irish commentator and economist David McWilliams. He'll be telling me why Ireland might do okay even if Britain decides to leave the European Union. Brexit will have no material impact on the British economy, good or bad, it seems. And if that is the case, the country that does one billion euros of trade a week with Britain, i.e. Ireland, should do okay. And why this might be the moment to bury the hatchet. I think it would be kind of ironic on the 100th anniversary of 1916 if the two sides that emerged from that revolution did merge. I think a grand coalition is probably the most logical outcome of this hung parliament, which we look to be going into. Stay with us to hear about that and a whole lot more. First, back to Uganda. The results of the presidential election are now in, and there were no surprises. In fact, the result was the same that it's been every time. The incumbent president, Museveni, won comfortably with more than 60% of the vote, and his primary opponents have been under house arrest. Halima Atumani went back to the women's writer circle in Kampala to ask them if they were surprised about the result. I knew that would happen, given the fact that we have had cases of vote rigging, one. We didn't expect anything new. I actually thought there would be some change. I thought, despite the vote rigging and all that, the kind of numbers that uh, some candidates had would translate into votes, which actually did not come from. Was your candidate one, cheated or beaten? My candidate was not beaten, but he lost terribly and I accepted defeat. You know, when he came, when he declared, my candidate declared that he was going to contest, I had a lot of hope. And I actually thought that he had gained momentum. But when I went to vote, I realized that maybe were one or two or three people who supported him at my polling station. So I accepted, I, I conceded. You know, there are sometimes when you feel that something is useless, but then you have that tiny spark of hope that maybe this time things will be a little bit better. But then you reach a point and you realize, uh, actually, even this hope is not there. It was just a mirage. President Museveni, who's been in power for the last 30 years, now extending his stay for another five years, he promised a number of things. For example, the issue of jobs, good health care, the issue of um, better roads, uh, good quality education, also fighting poverty. Do you see him fulfilling all his promises that he made during the elections? Are you hopeful? If uh, he has not done something for the last 30 years, I don't have a lot of hope that it can be done in five years. Do you worry for the districts that did not vote for him? I think yes, because we've actually heard him saying that uh, if you vote the opposition, you'll not get service delivery. So definitely we are going to see some districts not getting any roads being constructed in the area. I expect the president to, to, to reinforce himself in security because he, he knows he, he has raped the country. 
So he's going to try to defend himself and of course then I expect he's going to spend more on, on security, on consolidating his already precarious situation. I expect that the country to become more militarized. I think actually very soon that the flimsy cloth of democracy is going to be thrown away and we are going to become a blunted dictatorial country. So I don't expect anything better. I actually think the next five years will be the hardest. They'll be the hardest because somehow the president feels he no longer has anything to convince us about. He feels that people have given up on him and so he will do things according to his own way. And that will translate to other leaders also going for their own satisfaction. Well, he has nothing to lose you know, in these five years. Well, he'll do what he has to do. If he's going to plunder the resources in the country, he will. Because after the, the five years, he'll go. Halima Atumani reporting from Kampala. I asked my colleague Adam Branch, who studies Ugandan politics, for his take on the outcome of the election. So I think Mbamazi's bad showing signals the fact that it's really almost impossible to run a presidential campaign in Uganda if you're not either the president or you're not the single opposition figure who has been running for the last 15 years. It shows that anybody from the establishment, that is Mbabazi, the only attraction that he has to voters is if he has significant control and access to resources. And the moment that suddenly he was seen not to be able to redistribute resources among the population, he lost all interest. So in a sense, he's the worst of all worlds. He's still attached to the NRM, so he's seen as corrupt and authoritarian, but he also doesn't have the resources of the NRM. So in that sense, he has the worst of the opposition as well. So you said that the best that can be said for it is that there wasn't a great deal of violence. But, I mean, that's not saying a lot, given what you've just described, is that what's happened is what's happened each time in the past. Is this a real election? I mean, this is the question that people, I think, from the outside are going to want to know. And phrases are used often like free and fair. The counterpoint is that it was rigged. And certainly that is the accusation that's being made, that it was rigged. Can you give us a straight answer to that question? Is this a real election? I mean, it's a real election in the sense that people around the country on a single day lined up and most of them ticked a box and and had that ballot counted in some way or the other. And so the results do reflect pretty much what boxes people ticked. Well, generally. I mean, I think that we have to see in terms of whether it was a real election or not, whether it, it represented the will of the people. I mean, I think that's a different question. So I think you have to look at the kind of rigging that was happening both on the day of the election, but also look at the sort of broader political landscape and the way that it has a completely uneven playing field for opposition versus the president. So on the day of the election, I mean, there were rampant reports of vote rigging, of stuffed ballot boxes, of pre-ticked ballot papers. There were delays in opposition areas. There were times when the ballot papers didn't show up until six hours late and people only had a couple hours left to vote. When the results were announced, many opposition strongholds weren't included in the numbers that were announced. Just a really sort of shameful performance by the Electoral Commission in Uganda. But everybody expected that because it is seen as unabashedly partisan and in favor of the president. So the election exercise itself was 
very flawed and had a number of irregularities and problems. And it actually led to a number of the election observers to condemn it. Obasanjo, the former president of Nigeria, said it fell well short of a democratic benchmark. The European Union electoral observer mission denounced the atmosphere of fear that it was undertaken in. But even more damaging to the idea that what happened was a genuine election that represented the will of the people is what had happened for the last year, two years, five years leading up to the election. Regular, consistent harassment and repression of political opposition, repression and harassment of independent media, massive bribery of the voters, very strong governmental security control over rural areas, areas that the government depends upon to secure its vote. To call it free or fair would be a I mean, it would be a joke, in my view. So where does it go from here, then? Um, you said that one fear and one possibility is what happened last time, which is that this would lead to serious mass protest, indeed an uprising of a kind, and then the repression that would follow, which followed last time. Um, it's very early days, but do you see any sign of that? Bessie Jay has talked about going back to the courts this time, even though he said that he would not do so. I think that while he got a pretty significant number of votes, I, I certainly don't think that all the people who voted for him would be willing to take to the streets and protest because they saw what happened last time and they know that Museveni is willing to punish severely anybody who stands up to him. You see this in many ways. You saw this with Mbavazi. You see this with Bessie and the kind of intense physical punishment that he's been taking for well over a decade from the regime. And you saw it in the 2011 Walk to Work protest. And that's on top of the fact that Bessie who is the one who would lead the protest, every time he tries to leave his house, he's arrested. He's been arrested four times in the last five days. He was arrested when he left his house to try to go to the Electoral Commission to pick up the paperwork so that he could have a court case and show that the vote had been rigged. So the government has basically put the entire city of Kampala under military control. They have roadblocks leading in and out of the city. You have armored personnel carriers patrolling neighborhoods, patrolling the university campus. You know, from friends, the kinds of emails that I was getting over the last few days, it was just deep, deep concern over what might happen, over the possibilities for violence, over the possibilities that the government's crackdown on any kind of opposition would lead to massive disruption, but also a great deal of violence just against regular people. What that's going to mean in terms of the long term for political opposition, if we're going to see a shift from political parties and open opposition to maybe armed opposition or to a resurgence of violent efforts to displace the regime that we we will have to wait and see. So so to finish with a long-term question, you've just painted a pretty bleak picture of Ugandan democracy and the story going back to 1986 is this isn't a democracy even by the minimal definition of political scientists, which is you need to see ideally two peaceful changes, handovers of power from one side to another. And in Uganda, we've had none. It's been Museveni each time, and the same opposition candidate has met the same result. The courts aren't going to do it. A popular uprising was attempted and failed. Where is change coming from in this society? Well, I really don't know at this point. The possibilities for a transition to happen from within the regime seem to have been crushed with the sidelining of Mbabazi. There are a couple other figures within the regime, Kadaga, the Speaker of Parliament, who might be candidates for sort of a transitional figure after Museveni, but 
that's hard to tell. Um, and it's also hard to tell because you don't know if people like uh, Kadaga would be able to have the support of the military because the military is, in a sense, has become the power broker in the country. The possibility for a transition coming from within the party seems very slight. The possibility for a viable opposition candidate to come up also seems very slight. Bessie J has been the only opposition candidate really for the last 15 years, and nobody else has been able to even get close to the amount of support that he has. And also, you know, the structures are in place and the repression is so much that anyone who tries to become a prominent opposition politician is going to be crushed or is going to be bribed and co-opted by the regime. So does it depend on some force from the outside? I mean, you know, you want to get away from seeing that as the story for Africa. But in this case, you said that this regime is propped up in essentially by the West. Does it require change in approaches in the West to change Uganda? I mean, I think that's certainly one part of it. The United States, for example, after this election announced that it was deeply inconsistent with international standards and expectations for any democratic process. And then they're going to give $750 million to Uganda next year, a lot of it for military aid. So the election observers have been saying the exact same thing after every single election and nothing that they have said has been responded to. And why is that? Because the government doesn't have to respond to them. Because Museveni knows that he can keep doing what he's doing and staying in power, and the donors are going to continue to pour money into his regime. So I think that that's certainly part of it. I think that the donors need to cut back on the kind of aid that they're providing, especially military aid. I think that they need to back off from the kind of uncompromising support that they've been giving him. The other part is obviously you have to have some kind of political opposition, organized political opposition arising within the country that's not immediately repressed or crushed. How that's going to happen, who knows? Um, but I guess that's the thing about politics. It both <laughs> At the moments that things look most hopeless, something completely unexpected could arise. Thank you to Adam Branch, reminding us that there's always hope, even when there sometimes doesn't appear to be any. And perhaps that's a good way into talking about Donald Trump. Trump is the victor now we know in the Nevada caucus, where he won handsomely, after his triumph in South Carolina, where he finally saw off Jeb Bush. We're being told now this is a two-horse race. It's Trump versus Marco Rubio, but it's a strange kind of two-horse race because Rubio doesn't seem to get a clear run at the leading candidate. There are too many other horses left in the field. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey and Aaron Rapport. Aaron, do you think that there's any way that Rubio can still win this? First off, the one reason to be optimistic if you are a Rubio supporter, if you look at Donald Trump's poll numbers, he has a very strong core of supporters, but around two-thirds of likely Republican primary voters don't support Trump. Although it has to be said in Nevada, he was polling at about 45%. It's a a small portion. And that's approximately what he got, I believe, in the Nevada uh, caucuses. That being said, Rubio is yet to win a state. And I don't see Rubio or Cruz, who's the other main contender for uh, the nomination, aside from Trump, dropping out. So they're going to continue to split up one another's votes. I'm not exactly sure who Jeb Bush's 12 voters fell to. And John Kasich is still in the race, though he's fairly inconsequential at this point as well, at least as a presidential candidate. And Ben Carson, if he drops out, his votes presumably go to Trump. Presumably. He said something very puzzling the other night after Nevada about saying, paraphrasing, things are looking in the right direction, which seems to me to be delusional. I would say that if I had to put my money on any one candidate emerging, I would put my money on Donald Trump now. 
Helen, it, it, there are too many other candidates in the field. I mean, the thing that really strikes me about this is how much the rules of the game matter. And in this age of anti-oligarchic or populist politics, you can see the advantage of systems that force it down to a two-way contest. The conservative, British conservative leadership election ends up asking people to choose one of two. The French presidential election ends up asking people to choose one or two, and that may be the thing that stops Marine Le Pen from becoming president of France. But this doesn't, and that means you can win it with 40% of the vote. I think that that's correct, but I think it's also the advantage that Trump has is is that he scores well amongst every single demographic group amongst the Republican voters, including in those ones in which his rivals, Rubio and Cruz, should be winning, and that is evangelical voters who have been a very important part of the Republican base. Now, if Trump can win that with both Rubio and Cruz in, in the race, then it's difficult to see how he actually loses the nomination when one of them drops out. In Nevada, he won even in the group where he has thus far not managed to win, which is amongst graduate voters. So usually you would say that a leading candidate has some weakness amongst a demographic group. Trump doesn't actually have it. Just a little conversation now about the kind of candidate he is, because we've almost been taking it for granted that people know what kind of candidate he is, but it's not at all clear, actually, because he's lots of different things to different people, as Helen was saying. So I've been struck by, a lot of people have been struck by, not just how nasty he is about the other candidates, but the kinds of insults he likes to deploy. So one line of attack he's been taking against Rubio recently is that he sweats too much to be president after the debate in which he seemed very robotic and then he got quite stressed, Rubio, and he was perspiring heavily under the lights. And Trump has come out and said, imagine that guy who looks like he's just been in a swimming pool going to negotiate with Putin, the ice-cold Putin. We would be laughed out of court. I'll go in there and I won't sweat. And this is part of a pattern. We had Hillary Clinton and her bathroom breaks. We had Megyn Kelly. I'm not even going to say what he said about her. But so we've had menstruation, micturition, perspiration. And what is going on here? I mean, is this just schoolyard bullying? And we're all familiar with that. You just pick on people because their bodies function like bodies do. Or is this complex political psychology that he's trying to take down candidates running for this semi-sacred office there's political science about this and if you can get people feeling mildly disgusted by them they won't vote what is going on uh first off i don't necessarily think it's a conscious strategy for trump to try to attach disgust uh to uh his opponents so if you go back to his book the art of the deal um he actually is by his own admission something of a germaphobe he says he hates shaking hands because it seems so unclean and he washes his hands so he's a kind of howard hughes candidate for president i don't know if he's saving his urine in a jar and drawing his fingernails out very long behind closed doors but there's been a fair amount of research done by psychologists like jonathan Haidt uh or height and and jesse graham uh that that shows that uh especially conservative voters uh, purity, which is the antithesis of disgust, is one of their most deeply held moral values. And this works not only on kind of a uh, organic level, right, being disgusted by bodily functions or rotting food, but it also can work against outsiders, right, who are seen as possibly, and this is sort of an evolutionary example, uh, being vectors of disease, right? So if you attach disgust to immigrants, right, Muslims, Mexicans coming over the border, bringing who knows what, that uh, again, is a powerful signal. At the same time, I think it is a factor that we have research showing uh, should motivate a certain type of conservative voter. Helen, what do you think is going on here? I mean, what particularly how 
strategic is this? Is he just sort of shooting from the hip? Or has he actually thought this through? Is he trying to suggest to possible voters something about what differentiates him from all of the other candidates using this kind of language? I think he is in part, but I think the most strategic part of it is simply the way he concentrates on other candidates' weakness. He works out what it is and then he goes for it in a pretty systematic fashion. And you can see that in the way in which he effectively took Jeb Bush out of the Republican race. Once he put that label of low energy on Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush never really recovered from that. He then started attacking him about his brother and his brother's presidency. He says the things that other candidates might want to say in terms of attacking their rivals, but other candidates don't say. And I think in the case of Rubio, what he's getting at as much as anything with the sweating attack is attacking somebody who can be seen as not very comfortable in his own skin, who can be seen as being essentially the puppet of... uh, the billionaires who support him. So a kind of Manchurian candidate. A kind of Manchurian candidate who sweats too much because he isn't really his own person. And I think that's the underlying message that comes out from the way in which Trump is now going for Rubio. Because that's interesting because one of the things that was said about the sweating attack is how can you both say that Rubio is a robot and say he sweats too much? Well, if he's the Manchurian candidate, that's how it could work. Finbar. Well, there's just one other aspect to this, which is he's very good at deflecting and causing a storm about this kind of insult when he doesn't want to answer a question about content or substance. And so, yes, there is some systematic nature to the way that he's going after the candidates, but he's incredibly good at deploying one of these insults at a moment where he should be pinned down on something of content. And the media constantly and the other candidates constantly aren't able to lay a glove on him on policy because they're getting sucked into this schoolyard event. Given that it's clear that this is an effective tactic, you spot the weakness of your opponent and you just hammer away at it. It seems obvious, although it's not easily done. A lot of commentators have then started to argue, why aren't the other candidates doing it to Trump? I mean, he has plenty of weaknesses. If we're going to keep it at the schoolyard level, I mean, his hair <laughs> seems to be a problem. And I was thinking about it this morning. It's not disgusting. It's more disturbing than disgusting. And that, I think, is crucially different, perhaps. And people have tried to sort of make fun of him, but he's almost beyond mockery. The other thought is that you just, he's presenting himself as the competent businessman who will get things done. And you dig into his record and he's not particularly competent. And when he gets things done, it often goes very badly wrong. Aaron, why is that not working? Have they not tried hard enough? There's some thought that they've left it too late. He has many weaknesses. So why is it him attacking others' weaknesses and others not attacking his weaknesses? Well, I think there is, to a certain extent, a thing about Trump where he really is not an establishment candidate in the sense that he doesn't follow standard political protocol. And while there's certainly uh, a history of mudslinging in American politics, Trump will oftentimes go, I think, beyond what others have considered to be the appropriate boundaries of mudslinging, right? To make this more than just an ad hominem attack against somebody's character or against uh, their policies, and more, again, about very kind of deeply personal traits. One thing I want to go back to about Helen's excellent point about Trump kind of being a bully is this is not disconnected from the politics of disgust. Uh, People who value purity very highly, what this reflects is, to a certain extent, a great amount of fear, fear of the unknown, fear of outsiders. And what those 
people are looking for is, as one of my friends put it on, on Facebook the other day, daddy president to assert himself as a strong, willful leader who will protect them. And one way to do that is by demonstrating your social dominance over your peer group uh, to, to demonstrate that you are this kind of strong paternalistic father figure. And as a matter of fact, a PhD student at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst found uh, after surveying South Carolinian voters that one of the two best predictors of whether or not you supported Trump in the primary there was uh, how well highly you scored on this measure of authoritarian personality. In other words, somebody looking for a strong authority figure to lead. The other measure that strongly predicted support for Trump was fear of being killed or having a family member killed by uh, a terrorist. So these two elements are not uh, independent of one another. They, they overlap. However much we might think maybe that the American presidential race is now coming close to being a foregone conclusion. I'm not sure that it is, but we're not definitely going to know for a while, maybe for a few weeks, maybe even for a few months. An election where we are going to know the result within a week is happening in Ireland, and we're going to be talking about that now. In a moment, I'll be talking to David McWilliams about some of the really interesting questions that are coming out of Irish politics at the moment. But Finbar, I just wanted to start by giving people a bit of a background, because of course, not everyone's going to be familiar with the fact there is an election happening in Ireland, or indeed, who's running. So can you just quickly give us a kind of guide to the runners and riders? Who, who's fighting this election? So the current government is a coalition government between Fine Gael and Labour. Up against them, the other big party is Fianna Fáil, led by Micheál Martin. And they were the party, again, in a small coalition in power in the previous government. And they had been in power through the run up to the financial crash. And so the basic structure of this election is a blame game, continuing blame for the crash to Fianna Fáil versus whether or not the so-called recovery in some people's eyes has been well managed by Fine Gael and Labour. So Ireland right now is the fastest growing economy in Europe. But that is balanced against a healthcare system which is in crisis with a huge rise in homelessness. And so there's this strange balance between a country which has essentially behaved according to the multilateral institutions and taken its medicine and now has macroeconomic indicators which all point in the right direction if you want to take it that way but with a social fabric which seems to have been very much damaged and not a feeling of recovery for the average person in the country. And tell us a little bit about the Taoiseach Enda Kenny. What kind of a politician is he? It's interesting to characterise him because he's soft-spoken and people who regard him well would regard him as a politician who can negotiate and who can come to agreements and can bring people together. People who don't regard him well would say that he unfortunately put together a manifesto and a number of pledges which patently couldn't have been followed through after the last election and which they haven't come through. For example, there was a plan to bring in comprehensive insurance because Ireland has a mixed public-private healthcare provision and they failed to do that. They brought in a water charge which has been incredibly divisive. So he, he himself is polarising. However, having said that, most of the main figures are polarising. So is this a trust election? I mean, these are talking about different elections, different parts of the world, but certain consistent themes seem to be coming up. Is this about how little people currently trust what we tend to call the political class or the political elite? It's partly about trust. It's also partly about a country that's very tired. Ireland has been through a lot of ups and downs, and people are finding it very hard to feel that their lives have been put back together again post the... 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Crash. You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. Earlier this week, I spoke to David McWilliams, the leading Irish economic and political commentator, who was joining us from his bookshop in Dublin, about what's really driving this election. I began by asking him if Irish politics really is stuck in the blame game for the financial crash that nearly brought down the Irish economy. What we've seen, David, over the last, certainly over the last 11 days, 12 days, has been the blame game as to who did what going on. But the interesting thing, is the party who are most to blame for the crash, almost uniquely, the Fianna Fáil party, are actually doing very well. And that has got probably to do with the underestimation of the ability of the leader at debates. They have a good leader called Michael Martin. He's been around a long, long time. He is totally contaminated with his association for the last government, But the fact is he's a very, very effective debater and the people have to a degree forgotten about the crash in the sense that they're prepared to actually vote for Fianna Fáil again. That is very frustrating for the Fianna Gael party because it seems to me that they had two platforms. One was the recovery is here and celebrate and the other one was if you don't think the recovery is here, well then blame the lads who got us into the mess. And what we're finding is they don't seem to be um, achieving much in the polls in terms of they started with about 36% of the vote and they're now down to 27 in the polls. Now, we know from the UK election the last time out the polls can be very wrong, but I don't think admitting that you're a Fine Gaelor is quite so toxic to the broad middle classes than admitting you're a Conservative, which seemed to be impossible for people to say until they actually went in to the polls. So... To answer your question, the ghost of the crash is still there and it's just a a matter of which party points the finger. But I believe that people have moved on a little bit. We'll we'll come back in a second to the question about what you think of the recovery and just how long-term you think it is. But it's very interesting that um, the current government, though not to blame for the crash, is finding itself on the receiving end of part of that blame game. And is it just the, the broader fact of democratic politics that if you are in power and have had to take some tough decisions, it's quite hard for people to remember back earlier to the causes of those tough decisions. They are just carrying the can for some difficult years. Well, I think you're right. I think it is, it is the nature of modern, mature, I think is the word, democracies, that being in power seems to be an excuse for somebody to point fingers at you and blame you for something. But my other sense is that the Fine Gael party, which is an unusual sort of centre-right hybrid, um, have been a little bit uh, supercilious in their approach to the electorate. Uh, they have been a little bit um, triumphalist early on. 
And they don't realize that most European democracies are very fractious and there's an enormous amount of non-partisan voters and there is a huge amount of discontent at a certain level, uh, particularly if you're depending on public services here in Ireland. And you take all those into the mix and they have also a very, very poor uh, performer in the present Taoiseach, who is not a very good debater. And it's quite different from actually the personality in private, who's actually quite good fun. But in the glare of the camera, he appears hesitant, inconsistent and not that sincere. And all those, I think, are are playing against them. I mean, as we've seen in most elections, people do vote for the person at the end of the day. Uh, you, you're making him sound a bit like Marco Rubio, the, the other robotic candidate that people are talking about at the moment. Well, I mean, the, the point is that... Uh, if he could just chill out in public and offer people the side that I've seen to him in private, which is actually very uh, easy to get on with. And, you know, the problem with modern politics is it's a, it's a televisual game and you need to be able to project a personality onto the screen and that personality has to be attractive, particularly in an over-familiar country like Ireland. Is he able to project any confidence in the economic recovery itself. One of the phrases that um, has come across to the UK in the reporting on the election is that he used, I'm not actually sure in what context he used it, the idea that there was going to be some fiscal space after the election. There was some breathing room now. You know, using an expression like fiscal space condemns, you know, torpedoes you straight away. I mean, basically what they're saying is, to use the common languages, you have more money in your arse pocket, right? And... uh, Coming up with some sort of turgid, inflated sense of its own importance expression, like fiscal space, rather than saying, listen, there's more money in the kitty, hopefully, if we can get the growth rate to keep going as it is and keep uh, keep our eye on costs, you know, which would have made, made much more sense. But aggrandizing economics, as I know and you know and everyone knows, is a fantastic way of turning off the average dude. And uh, I think even announcing the fiscal space in the first day of the hustings seemed to me to be political and common touch suicide. And it has proven to be a kind of a joke. So leaving aside the fact that it's jargon, is it true that that the current state of Irish, uh, the Irish economy and public finances in particular mean that after the election there is breathing room? Oh, yes, there is. Uh, You know, I mean, the, the economy is generating... Uh, a lot more tax revenue than people expected. Uh, that's coming from corporation tax on the one hand and income tax, uh, a small amount of capital gains taxes. Some parts of the property market, particularly here in South Dublin, are improving. So, you know, the tax take has increased quite significantly. The rate of unemployment has fallen quite significantly. Uh, the rate of net migration has increased and there is a general sense of buoyancy, particularly in Dublin. Again, it's not, not unlike the UK, where London is flying and the rest is, is lagging. And typically that's what happens in recoveries, you know, that the cities do better initially, and then that percolates out. However, the problem for the government is, by reiterating the recovery, it actually ended up dividing the population between those who think they're doing okay... And as we know in politics, nobody admits to be doing okay. And those who actually think they're doing badly and those who think they're doing badly get more and more 
annoyed with the government and those who know they're doing okay but don't want to tell it uh, don't want to tell anyone so it's actually a pretty basic political flaw i think in the marketing and the advertising of this this campaign so we're in the last week and uh, anything could really happen one more question on the economics is there any sense is anyone getting any mileage out of the thought that this could be another bubble I mean, you've talked about the recovery of property prices and so on, because in the UK, obviously, that's part of the thought that actually what the government is doing is really just reinflating another bubble. In terms of Ireland, I don't think there's a bubble here. I just think there's, you can't have a bubble when there's very little credit and there is very little credit. This is a country that's now kind of living off its own resources uh, for the first time in a long time. So I don't believe there is a bubble. I don't believe there's only two states of the economy, boom or bust. I think there are other states of the economy. And I, I think that... Ireland is in a position now where the economy could grow strongly, depending on other things. You know, we've got Brexit coming up, we've got what's going to happen in the U- US. I mean, basically, not to put too fine a point on it, this country is not a European country. Ireland is, you know, it's like kind of Connecticut with shitty weather. We're part of the American and the Anglo-American space. And as long as the Anglo-American, English-speaking world economy is doing okay, we'll do okay as well. How much anxiety is there about the possibility of Brexit? Because clearly Ireland is probably the country that would be most directly affected outside of the UK. Are people talking about it in the campaign? Are they worried about it? I think that there's a huge amount of hysteria, particularly amongst the bureaucratic elite in Ireland, who believe in Brussels as a shibboleth. The notion that if you repeat Europe is good enough times, it will be good. So there's an enormous buy-in in Ireland to uh, what would be described as a very pro-Brussels view at the bureaucratic elite. And they are out squealing about how awful Brexit's going to be and how the British economy will you know, collapse and la-la-la. But if you actually look at the, recent, the most recent stuff from England, there's a very good uh, piece written by Capital Economics last week, actually, you know, Brexit will have no material impact on the British economy, good or bad, it seems. And if that is the case, the country that does one billion euros of trade a week with Britain, i.e. Ireland, should do okay. What it would clearly have an impact on in the UK is the whole devolution agenda. It raises the possibility of another Scottish independence referendum. The Northern Irish parties have already divided quite clearly. The DUP have said they're going to vote uh, they're going to campaign in favour of Britain leaving. So does that cut across this, this election in Ireland, the thought of what it might do to relations on the island of Ireland? Well, the DUP will do anything to diminish relations between Ireland and Northern Ireland. That's what it exists for. So it's, it's the sort of the Kim Il-sung approach to politics, right? Their view is that anything that strengthens the border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland is a good thing. So I wouldn't really think that there's anything strategic or particularly intelligent going on in DUP thinking other than what we know them to be. They've been joined by a spectacular bigot who runs an outfit called the True Traditional Unionist Voice. And I wouldn't worry too much about, about them in the sense that we always knew that anything that is British patriotism would be embraced by them. And Brexit is, is, an, is a function of British patriotism. Although what's much more interesting for me is the notion that Britain leaves the European Union, Scotland leaves Britain, and then Britain ends up being the rather incongruous union of England, 
Wales and Northern Ireland, which is divided down the middle. That, I think, is a very unusual and rather unsustainable constitutional arrangement because really the only connection that Northern Ireland has with Britain is Scotland. That's where the cultural links are, that's where the historical links are, that's where the religious links are. Britain without Rangers would be a very cold place for Northern Ireland. So that leads on to a final couple of questions which are about Sinn Féin because we haven't talked about them yet. There is, of course, in in the UK and also across Europe more widely and indeed in the United States, a new kind of populist moment. Certain kinds of parties and politicians are tapping into anti-establishment anger with the way politics has been done. And Sinn Féin, as I understand it, are polling pretty well in this election. Is that because they are tapping into that kind of mood or has it got more to do with their traditional appeal Irish voters? I think it's it's an interesting question. I think it's a bit of both. My own sense is that they would have much more popular appeal if they didn't have Gerry Adams at the top because Gerry Adams is still synonymous with the RA, with the IRA. Okay? And although there are many what I call five-pint nationalists in Ireland who, after a couple of jars, will be very happy to list the atrocities of the Brits, okay? In general, the RA are not a good political platform of which to base a democratic mandate. So my own sense is that they'd be a much more effective populist party if they had a different leader. But that said, they are tapping into an anti-establishment moment, but also unlike Podemos and unlike Syriza and arguably unlike some of the other ones, Sinn Féin has an incredibly good local network. You know, it's not a demagogic party with one slogan and lots of enthusiastic first-time voters. Sinn Féin is a deeply, deeply committed, local, agitating party. And as a result of that, I think it's a very different beast to Podemos, which is a university phenomenon. Uh, We'll see how long it lasts. And and is there anyone in Sinn Féin from another generation who has the potential to come through I mean, when will there be a changing of the guard at the top? There is a very impressive guy uh, called Pierce Doherty, who is from Donegal, who is a young man. I think he's probably in his early 30s. He was therefore in primary school when the last bullet was fired in the north. And I think he's also got the personality that people would respond uh, to. They also have another leader here in Dublin called Mary Lou MacDonald, And she is, you know, a very impressive performer. But I'm not too sure she would carry that many uncommitted voters here in Dublin, whereas Pierce Doherty, I think, would be a better leader for them. So that that's really that's the case. You know, they have they have to build a southern party. And up until now, they've had very poor candidates in the south, Uh, very good local people, but nobody who could really project themselves on the national stage with any credibility. Uh, I suspect that will change. And when it does, I think they will become more and more powerful. The the result of this election will lead to negotiations. It will require, almost certainly, a a coalition of some sort. Is there any prospect of a grand coalition, a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael coalition? Or is that that always going to be a step too far in Irish politics? No, I think think it would be kind of ironic on the 100th anniversary of 1916 if the two sides that emerged from that revolution did merge. I think it's it's a grand coalition is probably the most logical outcome of this hung parliament, which we look to be going into. 
if the alternative would be a Sinn Féin-led, quite left-of-centre government with propped up by any number of independents and single-issue punters, I think the only responsible thing to do for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil would be to merge. But again, I'm not a member of either party. They do seem to, for the average voter, look the same. But it's what uh, Freud called the narcissism of small differences. When your differences are very small, you tend to elevate them profoundly. So I'm not too sure that either grassroots of both parties would support their leadership in going into coalition. And the reason is that politics is a very long game. And if you're in the business of heritage and DNA and genetics and all these things that politics happens to be about, not being in power for four years isn't a big deal. Thank you to David McWilliams. And now back to our panel, where we're also joined by Chris Brooke. And Chris teaches a course on the idea of the European Union. And we're now going to talk about Brexit. The referendum campaign has turned personal this week with the clash in the Commons between David Cameron and Boris Johnson. And it's very clear, and many commentators have pointed this out, that a lot of it is driven by how little they like each other, or at least how little they can understand why the other one is so successful. But there does seem to be a point of principle at stake here too. Johnson says leaving the EU is the only way to safeguard British sovereignty, and Cameron says staying in is the best safeguard we have. So Chris, which of them is right, or are they missing the point? Is this actually not about sovereignty at all? I think the sovereignty argument may be the strongest argument that proponents of Brexit have. There's a very real sense in which uh, between 1688 and 1972 or 1973, an entry into the European community, the United Kingdom could claim to be a properly sovereign political body uh, with the crown in Parliament as the sovereign uh, institution, with power over that period being concentrated in the hands of the House of Commons. Since entry into the European community, it's much more complicated than that. But I think the one of the questions we can raise is whether it's a question about popular sovereignty or parliamentary sovereignty, that the referendum can absolutely be seen as an exercise in popular sovereignty. The voters are going to decide whether they want uh, the United Kingdom to be inside or outside the European community. I think the people who have a problem are old-fashioned proponents of parliamentary sovereignty in the Enor Powell tradition, but I think there are still a number of people, especially in the Conservative Party, who think that it's the parliament that should be the sovereign body. And I think we really do have a situation now where, on the one hand, it's the European law takes precedence over uh, UK law, and on the other hand, it's the people who are consulted when they have to answer the question of, are we going to be in or out? So parliamentary sovereignty is being squeezed one way or the other. The other argument that's put by people who reject the idea that leaving the EU would rescue British or UK sovereignty, Helen, is that we live in a very complicated world. It's changed a lot even since 1972. And multilateral institutions and complex sovereignty arrangements between nation states and international bodies is just the norm now. So fine, pull out of the EU. You're not going to be pulling out of all the other bodies from NATO to the UN to everything else in which the UK belongs. So sovereignty is a kind of illusion anyway. I'm not sure I entirely agree with that. I think that, that one of the problems in this debate is is that the concept of sovereignty and the concept of power and autonomy get mixed up together. And I agree with Chris that there is a very clear way in which one can say that 
until 1973 when Britain joined the European Community that it was legally sovereign over a set of policy matters that it is no longer legally sovereign over. But that doesn't say anything in itself about the question of the ways in which Britain might exercise power in the world. And it may be the case that more power can be exercised within international bodies, including the European Union. But I think those two concepts have to be differentiated from each other. Because one argument that has been made in this context is that if the champions of Brexit say Britain is a potentially powerful, self-sufficient nation that could really exert influence in the world if only it could leave the EU. Well, if those things are true about Britain, why can't it exert that kind of influence inside the EU? And if it can't exert it inside the EU, how is it going to be any more successful throwing its weight around in other bodies? Well, I think there is a difficulty here for Britain's position in the EU, and that is is the fact that it is in, in the EU and outside the Eurozone. And that its position inside the Eurozone means that it is in a permanent minority and will be so long as it remains outside the Euro within the European Union. And it's very hard to win arguments in politics when one's in a permanent minority. So in that sense, it is difficult, very difficult for Britain to exercise influence within the European Union. And that doesn't in itself translate into saying it wouldn't be possible for Britain to have influence in the outside world. Erin, you study foreign policy. Sovereignty is potentially a big question when people are thinking about states and their power but it's also quite a technical question do you think it matters I mean in the 21st century does sovereignty define what a state is or are we looking at the wrong category here sovereignty is multi-dimensional in what it is uh, so there's kind of two elements to it if you want to be simplistic or simplified there's kind of de jure by law sovereignty and then there's de facto sovereignty what you're actually capable of doing Britain is certainly de jure sovereign it has a seat on the United Nations Security Council all their sovereign states recognize Britain as a sovereign state in and of itself it's the de facto sovereignty that seems to be at issue here right the ability to do things like control uh, unilaterally or autonomously what comes across your borders, whether that is goods, services, or people, for example, is obviously of a major concern. The ability to set laws without having outside interference and so on and so forth. If you look historically, I'm rather sympathetic actually to this argument Stephen Krasner makes, which is that sovereignty has always been a bit of organized hypocrisy. Some people make the argument that sovereignty is weakening now, that with multilateral transnational institutions like the European Union, um, you're seeing the last kind of throes of the sovereign state. I don't think that's the case because it assumes that sovereign states have always been much stronger than they actually are. In fact, sovereignty has routinely been compromised either through treaties or conventions or coercion or conquest ever since 1648, if you want to kind of date the modern state all the way back to that that specific date. I know we have probably a lot of Treaty of Westphalia buffs out there, so that's what the 1648 date refers to. But there's a bit of ahistoricism, I think, that we should avoid, and also a bit of simplification we should avoid when thinking about sovereignty as just one thing, as just de jure or de facto. And Chris, in the long history of people thinking about Europe, there is the other way of trying to project this, which is that European institutions should themselves, in some sense, aspire towards a kind of sovereignty. We're not going to hear much of that here. The people who are in favour of Britain remaining in the EU are not going to be making the super federalist case for sovereign European institutions. But should we be thinking more about that? Should we be thinking more about if, if the EU is going to work, it has to at least organise its hypocrisy better so that it looks a bit more sovereign? 
One of the things, I think, if you have a long look back, is that most proposals through modern European history for some kind of European Union or European Confederation haven't straightforwardly modelled the idea of an international state on the basis of making it look like a national state with state sovereignty. So one of the best-known proposals was the scheme that the Abbé de Saint-Pierre came up with in the early 18th century, and it's to have a council that meets in Utrecht that will make authoritative decisions over foreign policy disagreements that would then have the military force to enforce it. But that would be the extent of the sovereignty, more like a court that could deal with disputes rather than the full panoply of political institutions that characterise a modern state. And if you go through the hundreds of years that people have been speculating and thinking and planning for forms of European unity, it doesn't often take the form of simply saying, we'll take the modern sovereign nation-state and scale it up to something much bigger. And I think you see that in some of the recent literature too. Um, if you take a book like Glyn Morgan's book, The Idea of a European Superstate, so he's a Welsh academic who teaches in the United States, he comes down firmly on the side of a superstate, but it's very much, for him, driven by concerns about um, military defence, security policy. He thinks there's a particular challenge that neither independent European sovereign states nor the European Union, as it's currently constituted, can face up to. And so a superstate would be needed to meet that particular challenge. But that kind of superstate isn't necessarily going to look much like France, but on a much bigger scale. I think we pretty successfully there managed to have a discussion without making it about personalities. Um, but I'm going to finish with a personality-driven question to Helen, which is what we now know is more or less the shape of the two sides in this argument and who's going to be at the forefront. And I imagine that David Cameron is somewhat disappointed to discover that the person he probably considers as the, the leading thinker in the cabinet, Michael Gove, perhaps Gove or Osborne, but maybe Michael Gove, maybe the more adventurous thinker, is on the Brexit side, and certainly the person who was, maybe until this week, the most popular politician within the Conservative Party, Boris Johnson, is on the Brexit side. Do you think Gove and Johnson can make the case for British sovereignty outside of the European Union in a way that really does resonate with voters in this referendum? I think that the pair of them don't work very well together. And they don't work very well together because Gove is capable of making much better arguments than Boris Johnson. At the same time, Gove starts from having alienated a great number of people. He's simply not very popular. Yeah, I mean, it should be said he's probably the least popular politician <laughs> if Johnson is the most popular. The problem from on the Johnson side is, though, is, is that though he is more popular and he can articulate certain kinds of positions with some panache, he doesn't actually look very committed to the idea of Britain leaving the European Union. It's a very muddled position that he's ended up taking. It still sounds like, oh, I could have done a better job than my old mate David, if only I'd been doing the negotiating. And that isn't really going to get the Brexit side of this very far. And in a way, that's the irony here in that making it about sovereignty is supposed to be a kind of clarifying point of principle. And yet, though Boris Johnson has made it about sovereignty, he's actually explicitly said this is the issue for him. He's then muddied that issue in the way that he's presented it. And that, I think, may well be a problem for, for the Brexit campaign. I think it's a huge problem because it's very difficult to see how Johnson thinks that he could have negotiated a better deal that would have done better for British sovereignty, given what we know about the way the EU works. It looks like fantasy on his part about saying, look, I'm, as I say, I'm better than David Cameron. Well, he won't be able to solve the problems that Britain faces in the European Union any better than David Cameron. Chris, do you, do you agree with that? 
yes, I do more or less. I mean, it seems to be the case that there's a great deal of public scepticism about Johnson. People think he's far more in it for himself and his career and his chances of becoming prime minister than he cares about the European issue. And I think one thought experiment that I think helps to you know, bring that thought into focus is that, you know, imagine that Johnson does become prime minister. Does he want to be prime minister of a country inside Europe or out of it? Disengaging the United Kingdom from the European Union will be a hugely complicated, boring process full of enormous technical policy challenges, which is likely to wreck the career and the reputation of whoever happens to be prime minister when it happens. Boris would much rather be prime minister as part of the European Union, where he can do his public clown act and slag off Brussels from time to time when it does things he doesn't like. That's a role he'd be very comfortable in, but actually getting him to be the guy who deals with the minutiae of the disengagement, that's a job he's absolutely not cut out for. But that seems to be the job that he currently says that he wants. Thank you to Helen, Finbar, Chris and Aaron, to Adam Branch and to our special guest David McWilliams, to Halima Atumani for her reporting from Kampala, and to our production team of Catherine Carr, Barry Colfer and Lizzie Presser. Next week, we will know the results of the Super Tuesday elections, which may settle a lot, but not everything. And we'll be trying to dissect them and understand them, but we'll also be revisiting Ireland to decide what really happened there and what it means. Do please join us again next week and do visit our website at Polis Election Podcast to catch up on lots of extras about all of the elections that we're covering. My name is David Runciman and this has been Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.